Hello, Energy Gang listeners. This week, we are happy to give you another episode of The Interchange. In this week's episode, we're going to cover everything you want to know about yield codes. It's a great conversation, but it's the last episode you're going to get for free for a while. As you listen to this, think to yourself, is it something I value? Am I getting a piece of content that I can't get anywhere else? Hopefully the answer is yes. And if it is, head on over to greentechmedia.com squared and sign up for GTM Squared, our new premium service. For 65 cents a day, you'll get a lot more than just this podcast. We'll have deep dives from our editors, insights from our analysts, event live streams, and discounts to our conferences. The site again is greentechmedia.com squared. And now here's the episode. This is The Interchange, a weekly conversation on the changing business of energy and clean tech from GTM Squared. In this week's show, Yield Co's. We're going to talk about how they work, why they've tanked in recent months, and whether or not they're the future of renewable energy financing. In Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey, joined by my co-host, Shale Khan, who is usually in Boston, but now out in San Diego for the uh, ESNA Storage Conference. How are you, Shale? I'm great. I'm looking out on the beautiful, sunny San Diego Harbor right now. And I guess I'll see you in San Diego in two weeks, right? I know. I, this is my fourth trip already this year to San Diego. Solar and storage companies love hosting conferences here. And of course, we'll be in San Diego for our upcoming Solar Market Insight Conference. And if you are a square, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that you already are a square. You get forever early bird pricing so you get good discounts on all our conferences. Uh, how prepared are you to talk about Yield Coast today? I'm, I'm ready. I wake up in the morning just, just desperate to talk about Yield Coast every day. <laughs> Tom Conrad, who is the manager of the Green Global Equity Income Portfolio, is another gentleman who probably wakes up thinking about Yield Coast and thinking about all things renewable energy finance. He joins us now by phone from New York. He's also a writer for All Energy Stocks. And that's where I first uh, met him when he was writing consistently for all energy stocks. He still does analysis over there, and he's a periodic contributor to Green Tech Media as well. Tom, welcome to The Interchange. It's great to be here. We're going to start off the show with our usual weekly challenge. I have a similar one to the last episode. I've got three quotes here from top executives who were discussing their respective yield co's. And Tom, you and Shale have to guess which one is fake. So I've got two real quotes, one fake one. Tom, I guess uh, I'll turn to you first since you're our guest and this is directly related to your, your work. Our first quote is from NRG CEO David Crane, who lamented in August that NRG was getting, quote, priced out of buying wind farms because of yield co-saturation. Prices were far beyond anything we could make work, Crane lamented. The second is from Abengoa Yield CEO Javier Garros who said on an investor call in August that it had been a difficult few months since taking office as our results were not in line with expectations. And the third one is from Sun Edison CEO Ahmad Shatila, who explained why Terraform Global had such a poor showing. Quote, we tried to do transactions the market couldn't absorb, said Shatila. So you've got David Crane from NRG, Javier Garros of Abangoa, and Ahmad Shatila of Sun Edison. Which one do you think is the fake quote, Tom? I think the crane quote from NRG seems the least likely. Okay. I'm trying so to remember why, but as I was listening, it just, yeah. 
All those investor calls tend to blend together. Shale, Tom has David Crane. Who do you pick? Yeah, I I can't disagree with him. I am I think it's David Crane too, and I think it's because I don't I don't think any of the yield co sponsors have talked about yield co saturation. I feel like that actually is a really bad strategic mm-hmm. thing for them to say. They they need to sort of pretend like there's no such thing as yield co saturation. So I can't imagine David Crane saying that. You're both wrong. David Crane did in fact say <laughs> that, and Ahmad Shatila made similar comments this summer as well. Both of them talked about market saturation. And Javier Garros, who recently did take over as the CEO of Abengoa Yield, did not in fact say that. In fact, in their investor call, uh, they said that they had hit targets for project acquisition. Isn't that kind of crazy that that David Crane and I guess Amachatila would talk about yield co-saturation already? I mean, given I mean, the, we're two years into the yield co market. I guess we're going to talk about this, but that, I'm surprised by that. Yeah. Tom, Tom, are you surprised by that? Well, I'm surprised that they're talking about it. But yeah, yield co saturation is real and with us, and it has been. Well, that is one of the factors that has contributed to the decline in stock price for the many yield codes that are out there, and and that's what we're going to talk about today. Shale, I think you should set up this conversation. We we discussed what we wanted to talk about, and it was very clear that yield codes were at the top of the list. So why are we talking about yield codes now, and uh, what do we want to get out of Tom today? Sure. So I think it makes sense to start with a little bit of background here. Um, looking at it from the perspective of the renewable energy industry, particularly in the U.S., but to some extent globally as well, a few years ago, it was all the rage to talk about how the cost of capital for renewable energy projects was too high. The cost to install these things had come down a lot, but the cost of capital had not fallen nearly as far. And there was a presumption in the industry that this was investors misunderstanding these assets and not realizing how risk-free ultimately they are once they're operating and once they have you know, long-term contracted cash flows from credit-worthy counterparties. So these are really risk, uh, risk-free risk assets and, and they weren't being valued as such and their cost of capital was too high. It was making it harder to do new projects. And so for a long time, the conversations at, at solar conferences in particular revolved around uh, the prospects for solar getting included in either MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, or REITs, Real Estate Investment Trusts, both of which are financing vehicles that already exist but aren't available to renewable energy projects. And MLPs would have required an act of Congress. REITs would have required a uh, clarification on the part of the Treasury Department. And so there were you know, dozens of conference sessions talking about this, and there was some activity trying to lobby to get either the administration or Congress to do something about it. And then instead of either of those two things happening, yield co's emerged. So NRG launched the first yield co, NRG yield in July 2013. Um, Since then, by one count that I saw as of a couple months ago, there have been 13 more. So there are now 14 yield co's of one kind or another, both in the US and abroad. And yield co's turned out to be, or at least looked to be, an alternative to MLPs and REITs that also lower the cost of capital of projects um, and do so without requiring any, you know, act of Congress, which is hard to get done. And the companies that launched these yield codes were having enormous success. You know, NRG Yield and then most of the ones that followed it uh, launched Heather IPO and then immediately the stock price shot upward. 
it made it such that most of the larger renewable energy developers had to start answering questions about whether they were going to have their own yield co and increasingly were answering yes. But there was a note um, from UBS this April suggesting that there were another up to 13 potential yield co's that had been announced. So we would go from something like 14 to 27 yield co's within the next 12 months. Um, it was getting more and more popular. And it looked really great until earlier this year, uh, the bottom started to fall out and yield co prices started to plummet. Um, this, you know, we could talk about why that is, and it's a bunch of factors, some of which may be rational and some of which may not. But the upshot of it is that as of this recording, um, Terraform Power, which is Sun Edison's yield co, is down 39% on the year. 8.3, which is the combined yield co for solar and sun power, is down 37%. NRG yield is down something like 40%. Pattern energy, which is um, a little bit less drastic, is down something like 10%. But basically, every yield co is down significantly on this year. And then, you know, as a direct result of that, as well as a few other factors, you've had some big announcements from companies like NRG, which is making a relatively drastic move to sort of separate off its home solar and EV business and give it a, a cap on the cash it'll offer. And Sun Edison, which more recently, Stephen, you broke the story of uh, layoffs, big layoffs at Sun Edison, up to 15% of the workforce which is not unrelated to the yield co price falling in addition to the, the corporate equity price falling. So yield co's um, both are still a way to finance a lot of renewable energy projects in the U.S. and may remain so, but also right now are sort of falling out of favor with investors. So I think that uh, the point of this conversation, at least for me, is first of all to feel like we can get a better handle on on yield codes themselves. What are they there for? What is the argument in favor? What is the argument against? What do they do? And then second, what's happening this year? Is it just that the market is volatile and this is the down cycle um, and it'll come back up? Or is it that there's some fundamental flaw in yield codes that makes it such that um, they're reliant on high stock prices and when you don't have that, the, the whole thing falls apart? So I have a lot of questions myself about yield codes, but... I'm excited to, to talk about it with you guys. Fantastic description. And I'm really eager to get Tom's take on why investors have pulled out of Yield Coast because it is a, a bunch of different factors. We'll get to those. Tom, maybe you can get everybody on the same page and break down exactly how a Yield Co. works and what its relationship with its parent company is, how they're selling projects, what they do with those projects, and then how they distribute distribute dividends to investors. Give us the simple explanation so that we all have a clear understanding of exactly how a yield co works. Well, a yield co sort of solves the problem for the, the investor of how do I get my share of the cash flow streams from these low-risk clean energy assets like solar and wind farms. For the parent company, the clean energy developer, it provides a way to access that lower cost capital that does recognize that these assets are much lower risk than the development company itself. That is, so a solar farm that uh, Sun Edison builds is a lower risk asset than Sun Edison itself. And so a different sort of investor who's willing to pay more for um, lower risk cash flows is interested in buying 
um, Terraform power than the investor who's interested in buying Sun Edison. What exactly Yieldco is, um, we don't actually have a ton of agreement on that. Um, she'll give account of 14 existing yield co's. I count higher because I see a yield co as basically a company that buys clean energy assets and uses uses the long-term contracted cash flows from those assets to pay dividends to shareholders. Okay, so just to recap here, we have yield co's are publicly traded vehicles that are basically a bundle of projects with long-term contracted cash flows, and they pay the majority of those cash flows out in dividends to investors. Um, and that is a lower cost of capital than it would have been for the developer if they had just financed the project individually. Now, one of the knocks, I guess, on Yield Coast from the start is that they are ever hungry for increasing volume of projects. Tom, can you explain why the structure of a Yield Co. requires ever more pipeline? The Evermore pipeline thing is not actually universal among companies I called yield codes. Um, it's it, it grew. It started with NRG Yield, and it started with and uh, the ones that are sort of the core yield codes with the parents. And the way that need for the pipeline works is because they have promised dividend growth over time. If you just um, but there's, there are other yield codes, such as the UK yield codes, which basically just buy the assets and didn't promise much uh, dividend growth. So it's the dividend growth that requires buying a lot of assets. The way purchasing assets works to grow the dividend is through a sort of averaging up. Um, so the yield code, say, NRG yield, went public at, uh, split adjusted $11. And so it had $11 to invest per share in assets. That can produce a certain dividend. But then if it does a secondary offering at, say, $20, it will have a little more than $11 per share, depending on the size of that offering. It may now have $13 per share on average to invest. And that $13 can produce a higher dividend than the original $11 per share could do. And so sequential... Um, secondary offerings at higher share prices allow um, this promise of double-digit growth in dividend yield. But in that case, it, it requires that the stock price continually go up. It needs the stock price has to go up, and it also means that as the stock price goes up, the yield co has to issue more stock at those higher prices. So then the people who really hated on Yieldco's when they first started coming out, heard, I think, basically the, the story that you're telling and said Ponzi scheme. Can you sort of do away with the notion that it's, it's fully a Ponzi scheme? Well, a Ponzi scheme um, is based on taking money from future investors to pay off the old investors. Um, this isn't quite like that, but it definitely relies on sort of a greater flow. It's, it's, it's a bubble as opposed to a, a Ponzi scheme. The bubble looks at a real trend that is growing, projects it out into the future, and assumes it will continue forever. Um, a Ponzi scheme just doesn't have anything under it. A bubble usually starts with a real trend. So even the, the bubble, though, as the metaphor, is a, one that isn't particularly positive. 
right? Because you assume right. that the bubble pops at some point. So before yeah. we get into the negative side of it, let's let's see if we can make the bull case for yield codes, even the the U.S. based yield codes that are promising dividend growth. What's the what's the bull case for? you know, Terraform at 8.3 and NRG yield and Nextera Energy Partners and so on? Well, I mean, the bull case right now is that the bubble has popped and that they are now priced so with the assumption that there is very little growth and they can do that without rising share prices. That's the bull case. Um, in fact, I'm very bullish. I think, we've, I think we probably saw the bottom at the end of September. And why is that? Um, valuations had gotten very ridiculous um, on the downside. Uh, if you just look at these companies as this is a company that owns contracted long-term cash streams, assume no dividend growth, and assume that the assets become valueless after 20 years when the cash when the um, PPAs run out, they were still actually decent values, and so it now appeals to sort of the same investors who were buying the. Um, UK yield codes that never had growth in their business model, except that they were buying them at higher dividends. This might actually be a helpful place to give disclosures. Do you have any positions on these yield codes that you should talk about? Um, I own most of them at this point. As of a couple months ago, I only owned a few that I didn't feel were overpriced. But right now, let's see, I own Terraform Global. I own um, 8.3. I own Energy Yield A shares. Um, I own Hanneman Armstrong. I own Pattern, and I own Avangoa Yield. I think maybe it's easier to say the ones I don't currently own. <laughs> Are you buying up um, like crazy I now? Is stock prices so low? Uh, I was two weeks ago. Right now, I'm very much slowing down because uh, I think the bottom's in. Let's talk about the factors behind the decline. And then I want to get to what you think the rebound looks like in terms of stock price, in terms of volumes of projects, because that's what I'm trying to figure out. Are we going to continually see these peaks and valleys, or will we see a, a much more sustainable growth model? And, I, and I'm just trying to figure out what that looks like. First off, why did the prices for yield coast stocks drop so pre precipitously for all these yield codes basically all at once. What's going on with investor sentiment? Obviously, you have uh, some skittishness related to commodities markets and low oil prices. You had some investors nervous that yield codes were overpaying for their projects. You had anticipation about rising interest rates, uh, which makes other investments more attractive, and yield codes really depend on low interest rates. Uh, are how important were those three factors, and then were there any others that contributed to this uh, really stunning price drop? I would say that the stunning price drop is really a factor of the nature of bubbles. I think in hindsight we can see that it was a bubble at the time. It seemed like a bubble, but you never really know when it will end. Um, all these factors were things in the investor awareness before, but we were still um, benefiting from a um, virtuous cycle of rising stock prices, rising assets per share, and rising dividends. And as long as you have that virtuous cycle going, it can continue um, because a rising stock price you know, they, they, they feed on each other, as we discussed. If you have a rising stock price, you get a secondary offering at a higher price. That raises a dividend, etc. So it could have continued 
forever, but we knew it wouldn't because it was based on the assumption that it would continue forever. So the factors you mention are all factors that eventually got to the point where they um, reversed the cycle. And once the cycle reversed, when you have a bubble burst, it, it tends to burst really quickly and overcorrect. I mean, I think we saw that in 2001 with the dot-com bubble, the same thing. Um, there's one factor you didn't mention, which I think was very important, and that was from like April to June, um, there was a gigantic amount of new yield co stock issuance. June actually into July too, with a couple new IPOs like 8.3 and Terraform Global coming into play, and a lot of secondary offerings from the existing yield co's as well. So there was just a bunch of new money coming into the market and the existing investors didn't weren't ready to buy it you know as fast as it was coming out and the thing about a virtuous cycle is as soon as one of the pieces breaks and in this case the rising stock prices all the it all breaks down and investors had to look and say okay we don't have rising stock prices so we're not going to get these other things two things we're not going to get rising dividends because they don't have the money to invest more money to invest per share. And if we don't get rising dividends, then we have to revalue the yield codes. If we revalue the yield codes down, then we're not going to get secondary offerings. We're not going to get new assets. And, and so it reverses and it becomes a vicious cycle. So that vicious cycle is interesting, but you're saying it's not a, it's not a death spiral because at some point you get down to the, the, kind of price where it could be valued just based on existing assets, right? So that's the bottom right. in your mind? Yeah. Well, it, it, it'll go, it, it went past that. <laughs> um, and it always does. They, there's always overcorrection. But yeah, that's, that's the bottom. I mean, at some point, the, these companies are just worth something. I mean, you know, the, the, the solar um, installation on my roof, you know, cost a certain price. But, you know, someone could get, be giving me quotes for it every year to buy it from me. But at some point, you know, it's worth the amount of electricity it's producing. What about the assumptions that the yield codes are making about their projects? Firstly, the, like they, they assume a continued increase in electricity pricing, as you've written before. They also assume that PPAs are going to get re-signed at the end of the contract. And as you point out, for a technology like solar, which is still seeing strong cost improvements, it's unclear whether utilities or other off-takers may be willing to re-sign those contracts. I don't know if you have an opinion about that too, Shale, but Tom, are you worried about anything there in terms of the assumptions yield codes are making about re-signing those PPAs and what pricing will look like in electricity markets in the future? Yes, in the sense that when they were buying the assets, they may have overpaid um, but if you use a discounted cash flow model, whatever happens 15 years in the future becomes less important than the near term in terms of what a thing of a value is worth. So I just do my own valuation based on what they say, what their current cash flows are, and then just assuming that those cash flows go to zero after 15 to 20 years. Huh. That's an interesting distinction between, I, I guess I'm not as familiar with how you, what yield codes are assuming regarding end of PPA residual value and whether PPAs get re-signed. Um, I guess I'm curious to hear from you what they, what you think they actually are assuming, because I don't think they announce it in the same way as um, that 
same sort of issue is definitely a big part of the bear case on companies like Solar City, who are valued or at least have been valued historically based on their assumptions regarding retained value of the assets that they have. And a big assumption that was baked into the retained value calculations was uh, PPA renewal that was something like 90% yeah, renewal 90%, rate at yeah. a 10, 10% discount on, on the current pricing, which, I mean, there, there's a, there's a strong case that, that that's highly risky. 90% renewal rate, you know, 20 years down the line, who knows what the alternative will be at that point, what electricity prices will be. So that's a big deal for the residential solar companies. I don't have a great sense of how much of a difference it makes and how much we know about what the yield codes are assuming in their calculations. Um, I, I think you're right, Jill. I, I, I think we don't know. The, the quotes um, Stephen was referring to from a couple of my articles were quotes from industry insiders whom I interviewed who said that the only way they could make the prices that yield codes were paying for their assets sort of work in um, an asset valuation model was to make very generous assumptions about new PAs. Um, so I don't, I don't know what they're assuming either. Um, we, we should assume that a lot of these assets were purchased um, for too much. Yeah, that gets into an interesting topic that relates to sort of the impact that this yield co rush at least had been having on, say, the solar market, which is that it, it was very clearly for the past couple of years, it was a seller's market for projects. Uh, if you were a developer and you had decent assets, whether they were ready for construction or even beginning operation or even earlier in the process, you could find more than one active buyer for that project easily. That wasn't always true. There, you know, it wasn't always a seller's market for a while. It had been kind of a buyer's market. Um, but that changed with yield codes. And, you know, there was lots of chatter around, like, if you have good projects, you can get, you can get great pricing for them because there was so much competition to buy projects. And so prices were getting bid up, um, which may relate to, you know, I guess there's the question of, of whether they were overpaying for the assets, but regardless, they were paying more for the assets. And then as yield co prices started to come down and, you know, things sort of came back to earth a little bit this summer, we've been hearing that that asset prices for transactions are going down a little bit. So, it, you know, it does have an impact on project developers um, and on EPC firms and everybody else who's actually getting these projects done, uh, you know, and, and it also is making it a little bit more attractive for people to retain their projects. You know, it, it, there was a period during which even if you could potentially be a long-term owner of a project, it didn't make a lot of sense necessarily for you to do that if instead you could sell the project at a premium to a yield co and then turn around and invest that cash in developing more projects. But now you have some more companies, Conergy is a good example of this, that just announced they're going to start owning their own projects um, moving forward, or at least a portion of them. That you know, I don't know that they necessarily would have done that if we were still in the the heaviest of the yield co craze. Let's talk about what investors should be looking at beyond some of the top level metrics. So the most common thing that people are following is cash available for distribution, and these are the cash flows that yield co's can turn into dividends for investors, and and this is a what investors are paying attention to most. But you wrote an article where you listed all the things that you're eyeing. You're, you're, you want to see uh, an entity that has power purchase agreements that are fairly long. Uh, 
You want to see a diversity of assets, uh, assets that probably last longer than a solar plant, like a hydropower uh, facility, um, PPAs that are closer to a market price because they could be renewed. Going back to that whole PPA renewal issue, they could be renewed on favorable terms. Uh, you think that dispatchable energy technologies are important, which, of course, uh, solar without storage is not a dispatchable technology. It seems to me that you're kind of making a case against a pure play solar yield co like 8.3. Tell me a little bit more about those factors that you're looking at. And does that mean that a pure play technology, solar technology yield co like 8.3, you're, you're, you don't look as favorably on? Um, well, actually, 8.3 is one of my top picks right now. Um, I was trying to make the case for a not a pure pay. I don't mind the pure play stocks. It's I don't want a pure play solar portfolio of yield codes. Um, so I think within my portfolio of yield codes, I want my assets to be diversified. Um, but yeah, solar is one of those assets. You know, as Shale was saying, solar was probably saw the biggest bubbles in the prices that yield codes were paying. So you want to avoid it for that. Um, the factors you mentioned are the long-term factors that have to do with asset renewal. So we need to be um, more skeptical of those assets. But also, so we're looking. We're looking. We want to look for assets that have less renewal risk. Um, I think. I think probably 20% of the value of these assets have something to do with their renewal. The the, the renewal characteristics and certainly dispatchable technologies and long-term contracted technologies are the ones I expect will have the best renewals. Um, you did a podcast with JL, the, the first one in the series, about what would happen when we reach 15% solar. And um, I think the argument, I mean, you made a really, you know, the, the whole premise there is solar is going to undermine its own pricing power, um, and probably more so than any other technology, and I think that will really um, affect their recontracting risk. Now, that doesn't say you should never buy a company like 8.3. The reason it's my top pick right now is, well, it's down 37% since its IPO, which means it's trading at a discount to its asset value per share. And if the discount's big enough, then it is a value, then it's worth buying. What does the rebound look like in terms of share prices, uh, the cash available for distribution, projections from these yield co's? the types of and volumes of projects that they're buying up, I really don't know. I, I, what, what do you envision the rebound to look like? Will stock prices rise to the levels that they were in May and June, or will they be much lower? Just help, help us understand what that looks like what, and, and how long the rebound will, will last. I don't know how long that will take. I, I think the misprices, mispricings like we're currently seeing where we're, um, companies are trading far below their asset value. Um, I don't think that'll last long. I think it should be mostly over by the end of the year. Um, it'll come to the point where when yield codes can buy assets, um, we can issue new secondary, make new secondary offerings and buy assets that are somewhat key, that somewhat increase their, their distributions per share. But we're not going to see um, double-digit uh, increases in distributions per share again. I think most of these companies are going to cut those projections with the exception for of ones that 
started with really low distributions just to artificially be able to ramp them up. But eventually we're going to get to a steady state where most of these companies look like um, Brookfield Renewable Energy, like the Canadian former income trusts that basically see slow growth in distributions per share, less than 10%, maybe 5 Five, you know, two to eight percent annual increases in distributions, and um, the pricing is going to start reflecting that. We're going to see yields converge around the six percent range, um, except for the more risky ones with more risky assets. I think. Can you guys help me think through something that's been in the back of my head for a while? I'm not sure it's totally fleshed out, but I have this very slight concern that the rigidity of yield codes in terms of what they can take and what they want from projects will limit the innovation you can see in the market. So more specifically, uh, yield codes want long-term contracted cash flows from credit-worthy counterparties. And that's the model under which most renewable energy has been developed. And certainly for utility-scale renewables, which is the majority of what has been placed in yield codes thus far, that's been the the predominant structure. You have a, a 20 year or 25 year PPA from a utility. Um, but particularly when you get down to the distributed level, a lot of the innovation now around what you can offer customers doesn't necessarily carry those same characteristics. Like an example would be, you know, in commercial energy storage in the U S um, some companies are doing a shared savings model. So rather than getting long-term contracted cash flows, you have you know slightly less predictable cash flows, um, the which are shared with the customer, but which can be you know economically better in some cases. If it's not even economically better, it's just a better way to sell energy storage to a customer. But it seems to me that those assets probably don't fit in the yield co model. And I wonder whether, you know, if we go too far in the direction of yield codes, you, you end up with a lot of companies that are basically fitting their business model to their financing mechanism. And as a result, don't think so hard about new ways to offer these assets to customers or new ways to finance them. Do you, Tom, first of all, am I right that that kind of, you know, a shared savings or, or something with less predictable cash flow is, is not as attractive to a yield code? Depends on what you call a yield co. Um, I call. But aren't there shield, shared savings in Hannon Armstrong? Yeah, yeah. No, they invest. They invest in uh, performance contracts. That's like where they got their start. No, that's important. So what? So what is it about Hannon Armstrong that's different from the? You know. So I guess uh, put another way, could NRG yield put performance contracts in its yield co? And if not, why not? I think they probably could. I mean, I think we've seen all sorts of strange assets. I mean, uh, NRG Yield has these um, uh, heating and cooling assets, uh, climate control assets uh, in there, where um, which is very actually similar to a performance contracting asset. Um, and they started with those. They got those from NRG. Um, so, no, I don't think it's... I mean, I think certain yield codes have more expertise in this, and that's why I brought up Hannah Armstrong. I mean, they are certainly the leader in financing for um, performance contracting. But I think the very rigid, um, I think the risk you bring up probably was a bigger risk during the bubble because there was really cheap cash for this one type of asset. Um, and when there's cheap cash out, well, then all, um, 
all the developers are going to try to shoehorn their developments into that model. Tom, let's revisit the initial question posed at the beginning of this podcast. Are yield codes the future of renewable energy financing? How vital are they to the industry going forward when we actually see this rebound? I believe that they will return to be be very important for renewable energy. I don't think that they will ever be as dominant again as they were six months ago. Um, because to be that dominant, they had to overpay for assets. So then you'll see a combination of third-party sales, like what Sun Edison is doing. They're going to sell to third-party off-takers, and then they'll sell some into the yield co. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's a lot of natural buyers for these sorts of assets. I mean, I think insurance companies are natural buyers. University endowments are natural buyers for these assets directly. They don't have to go through a yield co to do it. The whole reason yield codes were, were um, created was that stock market equ- uh, equity investors are willing to take relatively low returns compared to some of these private investors. And that's not going to change long term. Right now, stock market investors need really high returns to potential returns to buy yield codes because they're scared because of the recent decline. But as the prices seem to have bottomed, this is currently the bottom as I expect, but at some point there's a bottom, there will be a slow recovery, and investors will become more comfortable with it as a long-term cash flow model. That role for yield codes isn't going away because that's a real need for both sides. Shale, are you convinced that we haven't seen a doomsday scenario and that there's a future for yield codes? Yeah, I think I'm convinced that we're, this isn't doomsday for yield codes. And I think I'm, I'm particularly convinced by the sort of idea that there's a, there's a natural bottom when you just value these things based on the existing portfolio of assets that, that have real value to them. So yeah, I don't think it's the bottom. I think it'll be interesting to see of those 13 or however many formerly planned yield codes, how many of those happen, whether this was sort of, you know, woke a bunch of the potential sponsors up to the idea that yield codes aren't, aren't, you know, going to go up forever and you're going to have these, these ups and downs and you're going to have to live with them. Um, and also whether it reopens conversations around other financing mechanisms that are, you know, ways to lower the cost of capital. So securitization is a good one. Solar City's done a few of those and there have now been a couple of others. Like will the distributed solar companies do just more of that and less of the yield co thing? MLPs and REITs are not off the table. There's still some momentum around getting either of those included. So I wonder whether, you know, it's not the end of yield codes. It's just the end of yield codes as the, the end all be all of financing. Well, that is the end of the show. Shale Khan is our senior VP of GTM Research. Good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us from San Diego. Likewise. I'll talk to you next week. And Tom Conrad is the manager of the Green Global Equity Income Portfolio and a contributor to GTM. He was with us from New York by phone. Thanks, Tom. I'm really happy you got to join us on the show. It was a pleasure. If you found this conversation valuable, consider subscribing to GTM Squared our new premium service that includes deep dive articles, insights from our analysts, discounts on our conferences, and of course, this podcast. If you're listening to this on the Energy Gang feed, this will be the last episode you hear for free. But for only $1.99, that's uh, around 65 cents a day, you can get access to all our episodes and all the other deep content we're putting out. To learn more, visit greentechmedia.com squared or send an email to squared at greentechmedia.com. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange from GTM Squared. Hey, hey.